Well, I invite you uh, to turn in your Bibles with me at this time to uh, Colossians 1. We're going to continue through our study of Colossians. We looked last time at uh, just the first two verses. Uh, verses 1 and 2, we looked at Paul's greeting to the church at Colossae. And uh, today we're going to start into now his thanksgiving. And uh, we're just going to look at the next three verses. We're going to look at verses 3 to 5. And so I'll invite you, uh, as you're turning there, we're going to read, starting in verse 3. Paul says, he's, he says, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you. Just stop there for now. Just have to bear with me, battling gale force winds here. So, Paul begins here with a note of thanksgiving. Uh, as this is common in Paul's letters, not in every single New Testament letter that we have of his, but it is common for him after he greets the church to then launch into this extended expression of gratitude to God for the church. And he reveals to them here the content of his prayers as he prays for them. And so in verse 3, he declares his thankfulness to God for them. And then in verse 4, he begins giving the reasons for this gratitude, the reasons why it is he's thankfulness, what's bringing this forth in him as he prays. And so I would suggest to you that this is very instructive for us to see what it is that causes this apostle of Jesus Christ, called by the will of God as we saw last week, what it is that causes this man to be filled with gratitude. And then as we consider these things, to examine our own hearts, our own selves, to see if we are even in the same ballpark as this apostle when it comes to things that excite us, things that bring about gratitude in our hearts and thankfulness. And then to seek after a similar heart as Paul uh, and to confess wherever it is that we fall short of this standard. So, in verse 3, we have this declaration of thankfulness to God. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So Paul's saying that whenever he prays, and you'll notice it says we there, we always thank. As Timothy is probably included in this, though as we talked about last week, primarily this, this letter is coming from Paul under his apostolic authority. But he says that he's always thanking God whenever he prays for the Colossians. He always thanks God for them. So he's suggesting here he doesn't ever pray for them without giving thanks to God for them. So I think that's a significant statement to hear from the Apostle Paul. How, how common it is, I trust you know this, how common it is when we pray, whether we're praying for ourselves or somebody else, to instantly just launch into the things that we need, the things that are required, to think of the things we lack. You know, dear God, you know, here's what I need this day. Here are my needs. As we think of other people, dear God, 
this is what that person needs, they've made this request, or here's what I think that person lacks and I would like you to do in that person. Uh, we tend to launch into that. But how helpful, if the Apostle Paul was writing to us or to any other church, you might kind of grip it a little bit nervous about what he's about to say. And to begin this letter saying, we always thank God for you when we pray. How helpful for the Colossians to read that from Paul. These are believers who do stand in need of correction. Paul is going to give instruction. He's going to give correction and warn them. But how helpful to first hear that the apostle is thankful to God whenever he prays for them. It's not just that he was thankful at one time, uh, but now... Uh, you know, now he just has all these issues and complaints with the people. And he thanks them all the time. So that's, I think, instructive for us as we pray, whether we're praying about situations in our own life or for others, to remember gratitude. And even to begin with gratitude, to start there, can be very helpful. It can be perspective shaping even, to think about the things to be thankful for. Also here in this verse, Paul's Trinitarian theology is also showing itself. He has already mentioned, as we looked at last week, Christ Jesus, and he has mentioned God in verse 1. But here he mentions that he prays to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is going to continue to develop this uh, further. He's going to write of the Father down in verse 12 of the Father's work of saving. And then he's going to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ into verse 15 especially. Talking about the preeminent Son, verse 15 and following. But even here, Paul already speaks of the Father and Jesus, the Lord. And that title, the Lord, when it's applied to Jesus, is a divine title. So you have God the Father, and you have Jesus who is Lord. And then down in verse 8, Paul's going to mention the third member of the Trinity as he talks about their love in the Spirit in verse 8. And so we will spend more time on this in coming weeks, um, but Paul is very much Trinitarian in his theology, in his understanding of God. And it's coming out here as he prays. So notice also, as he's praying and he's thankful, his thankfulness has an object. He's thankful to God. Right? That his, his thankfulness is not just a feeling that he has. He's just you know, glad that things are the way they are. Or he's just kind of happy about something. He's thankful to God. It has, it's this object of his gratitude. Paul is thankful, and then as we get into verse 4, Paul begins to state reasons why it is he's thankful. And the first reason he's thankful is because of the faith that the Colossians possess. So he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since or because we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul thanks God because he has heard that they possess faith. So as, when he says here he has heard of their faith, 
that's one place we find out Paul has not actually met these people personally. Right? He has heard of their faith. He's not witnessed it firsthand. Rather, as we'll see next week, it seems most likely it's Epaphras who has come and met with Paul and he's told Paul about the Colossian church and about their, their faith. And again, notice that their faith, likewise, has an object. It's not just a generic kind of faith. We'll hear people today talk about, uh, you just need to have faith. Just believe. That's not what Paul's talking about, obviously. He's saying it is faith that has the object in Christ Jesus. It is faith in Him. It is faith that trusts that Jesus Christ... The image of the invisible God has indeed come to earth in the form of a man. He has sacrificed himself on behalf of sinners. He has risen from the dead in victory over that sin. He has successfully purchased salvation, redemption, the forgiveness of sins for all who indeed have faith in him. So it is, when Paul says it's faith in Christ, he's not suggesting that you know, faith in the Father or faith in the Spirit is wrong or is unessential or not important. Clearly, Paul believes in the Father and the Spirit. He has said he gives thanks to God the Father. Rather, what Paul's getting at here, he mentions faith in Christ Jesus because it is faith in Jesus, it is in His name that salvation is found. So it reminds us of what Peter preached in Acts 4 when he says that no other name, there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is at the name of Jesus that we are saved. So it, again, it is not just faith in God generically. Oh sure, I believe in God. No, it is faith in the person and the work of His Son Jesus. Specifically, that's what Paul's thinking about here. So again, it's not just, do you believe in God? Oh, sure I do. No, it's, but do you believe that the Father has sent His Son Jesus, that Jesus has died for sinners, and that He is your only hope of forgiveness, your only hope of righteousness? Have you repented of your sin and are trusting in Christ alone? That's the faith in Christ Jesus that he's talking about here. And these Colossians possess this faith, and this makes Paul rejoice. This causes him to give thanks to the Father. So we see it is good and it is right to rejoice and to give thanks to God when we hear of or see someone who has faith in Christ. And again, this is not just a generic attitude of, of oh, that's great, but the thankfulness spoken of here is thankfulness to God the Father. So, Paul understands that ultimately, their faith, the fact that they possess this faith in Christ, is the result of God's grace being shown to them. And so that's why he thanks the Father that these people believe, that He has saved them and He is sustaining them. So I don't know, it might, it might seem odd to some of you, I don't know, uh, to, to think of thanking God for somebody's faith. Uh, there's a tendency to think that faith is just the consequence of we just kind of think through some things and make a decision or 
You know, and so, so it might seem odd to thank God that somebody believes. Well, they just, they figured that out or they did that on their own. But that's not Paul's view. He thanks God for their faith. Maybe you know that, and yet sometimes implicitly kind of default to this other way of thinking that maybe it's just part of maybe natural processes or they happen to believe and somebody else didn't and maybe they just thought through it really carefully. But Paul sees the appropriateness of praising God when true faith is found in a person. That's so because God is the one who works these things. So I want us just to consider for a moment to step back and to just look around you to other people that are here uh, and other people who are part of our fellowship who are not here, not able to be here, and just consider for a moment the grace of God that is in our midst. How it is that God is worthy to be praised for the faith of brothers and sisters around you. I think there's a lot to be amazed by. So consider, some of us here grew up in homes where Christianity was despised and even outright mocked and belittled. And yet, here we are. Some grew up in false religions, cults even, from which many people never come out. And yet, here we are. Some grew up lived their lives in debauched pursuits of pleasure from which so few people seem to escape. And yet, here we are. Some of us grew up with legalistic understandings of the faith, keeping the outside of the cup very clean, with every temptation towards living that pharisaical life of pride and arrogance at our external righteousness, and yet have come at some point to know our inner depravity and need for Christ. And so here we are. Some have had many friends who've professed faith in the Lord Jesus and yet who've wandered off for various reasons, perhaps into postmodern corruptions of Christianity, never to return, at least not yet. And yet somehow we've seen through this and here we are. Some of us have been hardened in arrogance and pride, and yet miraculously have had hearts softened. And here we sit. Some of us could hardly have cared at all about the things of the Lord. Too lazy, or too busy, or too concerned about other idols to care about any of this. And yet, here now you sit, greatly concerned about the things of the Lord that any one of us would escape any of those upbringings, backgrounds, and, and many more temptations is nothing short of amazing and is nothing short of the grace of God. And so it is a reason to give God thanks continually. And it is a reason, even as you see shortcomings in one another or in your own heart, to still give God thanks that you're not who you once were or that person was not who they once were. There are many reasons to be thankful for the faith we see even in our midst. So Paul is rightly grateful for this as he prays to God every time he prays for this church. So that's one reason he's thankful. The second reason for Paul's gratitude is the love that these believers have for one another and all the saints. He writes, we 
Always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and because of the love that you have for all the saints. Christians are those who are to be characterized by our love. I don't think that's a shock. Certainly our love should extend to all of our fellow human beings, doing good to all, as Paul says elsewhere, as, as we have opportunity, loving our neighbors, our physical neighbors around us, whoever might come across our paths, to extend love to them. But there's a further distinctive of Christian love that the Bible continually points to, and that is love for God's people, the church. Or as Paul says here, love for all the saints. Remember, we looked at last week, the saints are believers, the church. This is a distinctive, this is unique to Christian love. Now, this is what 1 John 1.14 says, very strongly worded, consider this. We know that we have passed out of death into life. How do we know this? What's an, an evidence of this, a fruit of this? He says, because we love the brothers. That's believers. And then he says, whoever does not love the brothers, that is, abides in death. So John tells us very strongly that love for other believers is a mark of true faith. Loving other Christians in your own church and wherever you might meet them and find them, the world over. And again, this is not just a generic, kind of general niceness to other people that it's talking about. That's good. It's good to be nice to other people. It's good to be kind to our physical neighbors, whoever we might come in contact with, to be kind and loving to the person who serves you at the store, wherever it might be. That's good. That's right. We also know unbelievers who, are, who do this as well, very nice people, probably nice neighbors, respectful of your property, respectful of your space maybe even. They're nice to you. You have a nice chat when you visit outside. Those are good things. But specifically what this is talking about here is love for Christians because they are Christians. It's a brotherly, familial love. And this is unique to believers and, you, and an evidence of faith. It is love for all the saints on account of the common salvation we possess, as we'll see in a moment. And so Paul, he has heard of their faith in Colossae, and he has heard, not only do they say and profess faith in Christ Jesus and is what he has done, but in addition to that, they love one another and they love all the saints. And he's thankful for this. This is a good fruit. And so th there's a number of things to take from this. Uh, if, you're, if, if love for Christians, for starters, is not something you have, you're kind of ambivalent when you think of believers, you don't have much more concern for other believers even than just anyone else, I think this is a reason to be warned. Uh, if we consider John's words especially, John says, if you don't love the brothers, you abide in death, he says. So this is a reason to examine 
the roots of professed faith. To repent of that. And yet we also know, even for true believers who do love the brothers, we know that this love is expressed imperfectly. This is true with us, and it was true with the Colossians. It's not without reason that Paul is going to go on in chapter 3 and exhort these believers to bear with one another. He says and in, chapter, in verse 14 of chapter 3, he exhorts them to put on love. Well, they do love one another, but he exhorts them to, to continue on in it, to put it on, to grow in their love for one another. And so for you, who love the saints, continue in that love for one another. Again, I think it's interesting, if we step back and consider one another in our own fellowship, to consider the differences that we have. We have differences in work, differences in age, differences in personality, differences in preferences on pretty well everything, differences in hobbies, background, countries we're from. Those are just to name a few differences. Outside of our common faith, I would suggest I would I would think many of us probably would really never talk. Probably wouldn't even know each other. And have no reason to really know each other. Rarely cross any path. Let alone would we have reason to care about each other and really love one another. And so be encouraged when you discover concern in your own heart for your brothers and sisters. Love for one another. Affection. Or when someone else expresses that to you. They call. They text. They whatever it is. They drop by. Because they're concerned for you. Right? Receive that. Not, it's not prying, invasive. It's just receive that as concern. This is a good thing. Praise God when the fruit of love for one another evidences itself. And it does. We, we see this continually. So let's praise God that this exists. And work all the more towards building that up. To put it on, as he, Paul will say in, in Chapter 3. Let us persevere with one another when love is hard. It's a, love, of course, is, we know this, is not a feeling. That's not all it is. Sometimes it's hard work. It's sacrificial. But it is good. And it is a fruit of, of faith. So let us nurture love for one another in any way we can. So Paul has given two of the reasons why it is that he's thankful for these Colossians. Why he thanks God for these people. He's heard of their faith in Christ. And he's heard of their love for all the saints. And now in verse 5 he gives the reason. He begins to give the ground for this faith and love that they have. The thing that accounts for their faith and love. The cause of these realities in the Colossians. He says this faith and this love is theirs. Verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you. This hope that he speaks of here, it's not referring to a feeling of hope. They may have had that, but that's not really what he's talking about when he speaks of hope. Rather, he's speaking of an objective reality. And most likely... 
the hope he's referring to, refers to all of the promises of God for believers, which will primarily be experienced at a future time, when the Lord Jesus returns, in the end. It's what Peter speaks of, I think, when, he, when Peter writes of an inheritance that is being kept for you in heaven. Just as the hope here Paul speaks of is the hope laid up for you in heaven. So this is not just a wishing, like we might wish for something that, to happen. But this hope is, through eyes of faith, viewed as a certain hope. It is the hope of glory, eternal life in the kingdom of God, with resurrected bodies, something that is made sure and certain by nothing less than the death and the resurrection of Christ. As certainly as that happened, this future hope will come to pass. And it is this hope that provides the basis of the Colossians' continued faith and love of the saints. And Paul adds here that this hope was received by them through the gospel, which he calls the word of truth, proclaimed to them. They heard about this hope when the gospel was preached. When they heard the message that Christ Jesus had come, he had died, risen from the dead, that he'd done that on behalf of sinners, that there's forgiveness of sins and redemption, salvation in his name. And they heard of the future resurrection that would come to all who believe in Christ, that they would dwell with the Lord forever. They believe this is the ground of their faith and, and hope. So if you were to ask, why Colossians do you believe? Why do you possess faith? They would answer, it's because of this great hope that is laid up for them in heaven. And that we're now, they would say, all living in light of that day. This is why we believe. This is why we continue on. If you were to ask them, why do you love one another? They would answer, it's because we're all citizens of God's kingdom, now and forevermore. We share together in this same hope. We are citizens of this same kingdom. So, eschatology, the study of end times, this can be confusing, it can be difficult, and for many people, eyes glaze over, and it's a, it, we just kind of throw our hands up. And it can be difficult. It is challenging. Sometimes people also get really animated about it, and that can also be sometimes off-putting. You just rather not even venture in than get our hands slapped. But I would, I would encourage you not to let that stop you. Not to let that scare you from it. While we may not figure every detail out, there is much there that is for the building up of your hope. So for example, some of the details of Revelation are difficult, they're hard to sort out. But if you step back, if you read through it broadly, there are some things that become quite clear, quite evident. For example, one of those things is that God Himself is in fact moving history towards its appointed end. That He is the one behind the events that take place. And it will all terminate on a day of His choosing. It is moreover clear that while believers now until that day suffer in this life 
opposition. It is nevertheless worth giving everything we have for the sake of Christ. Because of these spiritual realities and because of what is coming at the end. When the Lamb who died will return. When every person will be raised. And the Lamb will either bring judgment upon unbelievers or dwell forever with those who trust in Him. We find in Revelation a time when the dwelling place of God will indeed be with man, with His saints, with His people. And we're told the glory of God will be the light in the city. That the curse of sin will be gone and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and His servants will worship Him. And you who believe in Him shall see His face and will reign, it says, with the Lord there forever and ever. This is the hope laid up for you in heaven. This spurs faith today and love for one another and many other good deeds and works. It's fuel for the Christian life. It is the promise of the gospel, the word of truth for all who believe in Christ Jesus, that this is yours by God's grace through trusting in Jesus. And so there's much reason to be thankful. To be thankful for the fruit of faith and love which comes on account of this gospel and the promise of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. Such a promise is most certainly a gracious gift from God so there are so many reasons for you and I to be thankful. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks. We give you praise. Father, each one of us was dead in our trespasses and sins until you, by your gracious power, drew us to yourself, those who believe. And the lights came on, as it were, and we believed, and we loved you. Father, we don't deserve any of this, and so we thank you, we praise you. We praise you and thank you for the evidence of this grace in our own fellowship. Father, we also confess we are we so imperfectly love you, we imperfectly believe, we imperfectly love one another. But we do believe, we do love you, and we do love one another. And we thank you for these evidences of your grace. I thank you for all the displays of love that go on in our church. The sacrifices that are given, that are made in order to express love and kindness to one another. We pray that you would yet grow this love, that you would cause us to bear with one another, to be patient with one another, to think the best of one another, to fight through those things that would disrupt such love, to talk with one another openly about those things.
Father, we just stand back. We thank you. We pray that you would yet do much good in our midst. We pray that you would add more to our number, more who believe this faith, who likewise love all the saints wherever, wherever we find them. Father, I pray too that you would cause us to love the saints outside of our own church as well. That we would love, we would love missions. That we would love the thought of people going out into all the world to proclaim this word of truth. And that we would love those who go out and do this very thing. We pray that you would knit our hearts closer with those that we do support. That we would love the Killalay family, the Killalay family. That we would love all the missionaries we support, Aaron Cross. Father, may we rejoice in what they do. And may we seek to uphold them and help them in any way we can. I pray that these would not just be names to us, but that we would love them and, and, and the people they serve in their own churches and those they seek to draw into your family. And Father, the world over, wherever we hear of the gospel going forth, wherever we meet those who believe in Christ, I pray that that would cause rejoicing in our hearts. Father, I pray that you would help us to set our eyes on the future hope to be ours. And that you would encourage us and strengthen us in it. Father, we do love you. We thank you for all your evidences of grace. We pray all this together in Jesus' name. Amen.